0: As you think about your life, just think about your life in terms of the years that you've lived, some more than others here. I've I've lived 68 plus. Think think back on what what are the most important conversations you've ever had. What are the most important conversations you've ever had? The, The conversations that just sort of rise to the surface of your consciousness as you think about that. And as you're... Categorizing those and thinking through those, uh, there are some conversations that have that have changed my life. Um, for you, it might be an interview that you've you've had, a proposal of marriage, uh, a blessing of a parent, an encounter with someone who is challenging you, the encouragement of a counselor or a mentor. All those conversations can tend to be really important, and there are people that rise to the surface of my. Mind as I, as I think this one was a conversation I had with my dad when I was 18 years old. Uh, my dad sat me down in the living room of our house, and he told me that I wouldn't be able to attend the college that I wanted to go to, that I needed to to uh, readjust my expectations and uh, go to a school that would be less expensive. Money was a factor. And and uh, I, as I recall, I, I took it in and uh, was somewhat disappointed, but uh, I, I accepted that. Russ Akins was a man who... Uh, Worked in campus ministry when I was a student at the University of Toledo, and uh, he asked me, told you this uh, a couple times before. He asked me probably one of the most stimulating questions I've ever been asked: What's the most important thing you can do with your life? How do you how, how do you make your life matter? And that that was a that was a life changing conversation for me. Um, Mary Graham, a woman who who worked in in the ministry that that uh, I served with, and, and she. Uh, was one of the area supervisors, and she came up to to uh, see the ministry we had at Morehead State University Small School in northern Minnesota, and she uh, sat down with me afterwards and, and encouraged me that that uh, there are some things that we were doing that was heading in the right direction. I remember that conversation. Lauren Lillestrand was uh, director of our ministry, and he, uh, uh, through some challenge that he received had us all take uh, the myers-briggs personality inventory i'd never heard of it before but uh, I, I remember taking that test and and lauren got with me afterwards says you have a very unique uh personality and i uh, really i remember that i was pretty impressed that i was unique um laura maggio professor at springfield college as i interviewed her with her for uh my interest in the marriage and family therapy program there that was big Dennis Rainey, who is, uh, now he's stepped down of uh, the president of Family Life Ministries, Weekends to Remember, uh, over breakfast, Dennis looked at me and he says, it's time you wrote a book, and I did. I remember that conversation, I wrote a book. Hasn't done very well, uh, by the way. Uh, if, you could, if you want to encourage me, just go on Kindle and download it. You don't even have to read it, uh, but that would really help me, and, and if we could get to 500, that would be really cool. So, you know, I believe God uses those interactions, those conversations, I think he, he uses those to direct our lives. And I think he used each of those conversations to direct my life as if he were speaking to me through them. But here's another question I have for you. How would you respond and what would you say if you could have a face-to-face conversation with Jesus? How would you respond and what would you say? You could have a face-to-face conversation with Jesus. The text we are going to look at today is a text that is uh, fairly well known. If you if you've read Scripture before, in fact, it's a, it's it's a text uh, in the Gospel of John. But but uh, the the accounting of this interaction, this conversation, is is found in all four of the Gospels. And we've talked through this series, the, the day death lost its sting. And, and uh, three weeks ago we, we began with the last hours of Jesus' life and his, his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed for unity and love of His disciples, and he prayed for us as well. Then two weeks ago, we talked about the rest of Jesus and all the, all the things that transpired around that. And, and last week, uh, Zach took us through the, the trial of Jesus as, as he stood before. Caiaphas and uh, was uh, uh, challenged in terms of his future and and we looked at the implications of that trial so the text for tonight is is a rather lengthy one i 'm going to read all of it to you it's found in John eighteen uh, and it begins in verse twenty eight and and uh, we extended that i 'm going to extend that text in, into the nineteenth chapter because all of it goes together and um, if you uh, would just uh, listen to these words you don't have to read along with me i just want you to listen to the words john is very compelling as he writes and this is a a conversation that jesus has starting with john chapter 18 beginning with verse 28 then the jewish leaders took jesus from caiaphas to the palace of the roman governor by now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness they did not want to enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the passover So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? If you've listened to Zach and talking about this, we've talked through the Gospels, he, he mentions often that Jesus responds with questions. And here he is once again asking a question. He's standing before the most powerful man in that region, but he asked him a question. Is this your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And with this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Chapter 19, verse 1. And Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is God's word. Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was not a Jewish person. He was a Gentile. He was a Roman. Uh, He ruled in Judea from Historians say from 26 to 36 A.D., 11 years, and was considered to be part of what was called the equestrian class of rulers. Uh, these were minor rulers in, in the Roman Empire uh, that uh, that would rule the some of the territories that were conquered uh, by the Roman Roman in in their empire. Roman rulers were primarily concerned with two things: the collection of taxes to send money back to the powers in Rome, and to make sure that that uh, the The territories that they ruled over were peaceful. They wanted to make sure that they had complete control and and, and were were stabilizing the territories that that they they had conquered and uh, were controlling. Pilate had complete control of the Roman soldiers in this area. One of the oldest of of the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, in fact, it's probably the oldest extant confession of the Christian faith, uh, faith, uh, reads like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, and then this curious line, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into the hell. The third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Only two people are mentioned in that confession of faith. The mother of Jesus, Mary, and Pontius Pilate. Isn't that curious? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. I've tended a good portion of my life to feel that Pilate's already got a raw deal on this one, don't you? It's, it's like, huh, that's interesting. After all, he tried to get Jesus off. He tried to find a way to, to free him, but, but he was sort of caught up in these circumstances. And I didn't feel he was guilty that much. Isn't that were some points that he at least tried. But as so I prepared this and I was, was sitting in this conversation, of course, this is probably the last conversation that Jesus, substantive conversation Jesus had before his crucifixion. I began to see things in a little bit different light. This conversation that Jesus had with Pilate, I think, could come straight out of the 21st century. In the words of King Solomon, there really isn't anything new under the sun. Pilate's conversation with Jesus echoes down through the centuries several immutable truths, and and I want to just look at three of those, things that just stand out to me, truths that come out of this conversation. First truth is this. You cannot win a debate with Jesus, okay? Okay. I'll repeat that for you. You cannot win a debate with Jesus. Jesus looks to Pilate and he says, everyone who on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate responds with this question. "Well, Well, what is truth? What is truth? Pilate attempts to understand who Jesus is. He cannot quite grasp it. But his response here isn't like so philosophical and so innocent. I think, I believe he uses this statement as a shield. He responds with a 21st century argument. All truth is relative. How can we really know what's true? How how can you and I know what's really true? C.S. Lewis uh, was a prolific writer. And there's a book that compiles several of his essays. The book is entitled God in the Dock. And uh, it's... uh, Title is taken after one of the, the, the main essays in this book, God and the Dock. And, and the Dock, in, in English t- in Great Britain terminology is the witness stand in a courtroom. And C.S. Lewis wrote this essay because he he felt that in his century, the 20th century, that, that the roles had been reversed. Instead of God being our judge and, uh, and us comparing what's true to what God says is true, now it's been reversed. And instead of God judging us, we have God in the witness box. And we are asking God now the questions. You've heard them. Why why is there suffering? Why would God allow pain and misery? Why would God allow illness to come into my life or the the life of my loved ones? And we want God to give us a good explanation. We want God to tell us why we should honor him and listen to him. Because of that, we rationalize our own behavior. And we allow ourselves to experience the consequences. I believe of bad decisions. There are great German philosophers. Germany was was a country that I think that their their pastime was to produce philosophers. Uh, Immanuel Kant, Wittgenstein, great names. Schopenhauer is not a great name. Schopenhauer, Nietzsche. There's a philosopher the named of Hegel in in the nineteenth uh, uh, century, and his whole concept was. Uh, as it involved truth is that you 'd have a thesis and then you have an antithesis, something that opposed that thesis, and out of that you would get the synthesis and that 's how we come to truth and it 's always changing it 's always it 's always spinning itself out. The problem with that is that we end up nowhere if there's no truth, we end up really with 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 uh, no fixed point in our lives nancy piercy in in a recent uh, article in the new yorker magazine uh wrote about the whole uh outpouring that's happened publicly of of women saying that they were abused at the hands of powerful men and she's trying to comprehend how do we get here and how 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 does our culture allow these kinds of things to take place i thought it was interesting that she she said the loyalty oath of modern modernity is that nature is without conscious design and that the emergence of man, sapiens, was without meaning, without telos, no, no meaning. We're all chance. And all of our thinking is random thoughts. And the problem with that is if, if you end there, then there's nothing to hold on to in terms of what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. And she quotes Harvey Weinstein, who is one of the perpetrators of, of these abuses. You've, he's been in the news. An interesting statement he made. He says, I didn't do anything wrong. Can you imagine? I mean, I might have done some things that were immoral, he says, but I didn't do anything illegal. Pilate distances Jesus. I say, hey, how can we know what's true? What's truth? If ultimate truth is denied, everything becomes permissible. I have people on a fairly regular basis, people that I counsel, people that I talk with going through difficult times, that they will say words to this effect, you know, I'm really angry at God right now, or I had it out with God, or I really really told God what I think and how disappointed I am. And, and actually, that's not altogether unhealthy. The Psalms are full of what we call Psalms of complaint. The Holy Spirit leads these, these men to write Psalms that, where they're really struggling, and I think that's part of the spiritual journey. But anger is a secondary emotion, and if you stay angry, you will end up in a place that's not healthy, in a, in a place that is not going to take you where you need to go. Job in the Old Testament all his suffering, all the issues that he's dealing with, and he wants to know why, why? And he has it out with God, and he's angry, and he, he has complaints, and when God answers, he never tells him why. He just responds by showing Job his power, his design, who he is, and the truth of who he is. You cannot win a debate with Jesus. Jesus. Second thing I see in this conversation is that you cannot finesse Jesus. Finesse is not a biblical word. It is my word. Um, finesse, I don't know if you know the term. Finesse is, is a, a, a card-playing term. And uh, it's probably the first time I've ever used a card-playing term in a sermon. But uh, it's, it's actually a, it's a reminder of my misspent youth in, in college uh, in the student unit, the University of Toledo. Uh, we would play a Midwestern game called Euchre. And if you know Euchre, it's just a marvelous game. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very simple game. It's used half a deck. The, the two jacks that are uh, of the same color are the most powerful cards. And you bid. There's, there's, there's a, a, uh, uh, the buried cards. All, all, all the things that make, make the game interesting. And if you, if you really get a good hand, you get to go it alone. You don't even need your partner. And finessing is when you take a card that's not the highest card, but you're trying to lead it and hopefully take a trick with that lower card. It's not a sure thing. It's called finessing. And Pilate tries to finesse this situation. He knows Jesus is not worthy of death. He figures that out really quickly. But he thinks, well, let me finesse this situation. Let's, let's, let's keep everyone happy. Let's, let's make... Let's make this situation something where where I can come away and I don't have to do something that that I really don't want to do. Let's free Jesus and put to death Barabbas. Matthew account says that's his own idea. You don't necessarily get this from the John account, but he's thinking, hey, at Passover, we release a criminal back to the people. This is the act of mercy of the power of Rome. Ah, let's, let's let Jesus do this and then I won't have to sentence him to death. He knows the right thing to do, but he plays the angles. He plays the game of comparison. I'm, I'm tempted to do this all the time. I'm, I'm tempted to debate, first of all, with, with God in terms of, okay, is this really what you want me to do? But I'm also tempted to, to finesse what I know is true, and, and uh, Pilate does this well. I, I discovered this when I did campus ministry. We would, we would um, talk with college students, a lot of times in dorm rooms, and... and uh, we talk about spiritual things and we talk about what the gospel means and, and their need for the gospel. And, and a lot of times after conversations, toward the end of the conversation, the student will look at me and said, wow, this, this is good stuff. He said, but you really should talk to the guy down the hall, the guy down the hall, And we started to call it the guy down the hall syndrome. There's always someone worse off than you are, right? And Pilate's, Pilate's saying, let's, let's just let's just do a little bit of comparison here and then let's make sure that that everything's gonna be okay. And he doesn't really face up to what he needs to do. Jesus gives the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee, the righteous man in the temple with the publican, the abject sinner right next to him who's beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisee prays, oh God, thank you that I'm not like this man. And we, we... Read that parable, we listen to those words, and we say, oh, that's so bad that you can do that, but I, and I would imagine you at times too, play the, par- play the comparison game. Not quite as bad as that. Or maybe I play the comparison game with the things I'm deciding to do. If I'm on a questionable site in the internet, well, at least I'm not taking this too far. Finesse it. That one one drink could lead to another drink. Uh, You finesse it. We're doing taxes now. Do I report all my income? Hey, everyone sort of spins a little bit, don't they? Finesse it. Sex before marriage? Our culture is so used to that now. I mean, after all. Sex before marriage? That's sort of an old kind of principle, isn't it? It's finessed. Little lies. We call them white lies. What an interesting term, isn't it? White lies. I had had a husband tell me recently, I would have told my wife, but it would have made her angry. And I I don't like to see my wife angry. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's finessed. Relationships too close. That's not that bad. Haven't taken it too far. It's finessed. Good friend of mine, talking of her own spiritual journey, said recently when she was going through just a miserable time in her Christian life and was really not doing what God wanted her to do and she was sort of confessing these things to a friend and the friend looked at her and said don't call it wrestling when it's disobedience don't call it wrestling when it's disobedience Pilate here he's facing a straightforward moral choice is it right to sentence an innocent man to death for the sake of political expediency And he twists and turns and he goes all around. But instead of freeing Jesus, he makes an awkward attempt to play both ends against the middle. You can't finesse Jesus. Last thing I see in this, there's a lot more, but there's just one more I want to share with you. You cannot wash your hands of Jesus. The Matthew passage, all four gospels have have this encounter with Pilate. But the Matthew passage When he comes out and sits on that judgment seat, it says he brings out a a bowl of water and he actually physically goes through the act of washing his hands in front of that crowd. Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, that instead an uproar was starting and he took the water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent, he said, of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. All the people answered his blood is on us and on our children. We live in a culture, we live in a nation, I'm part of it, where the national tendency is to never take responsibility for anything to require sacrifice or for anything that doesn't work didn't work or is broken. That's not my responsibility. You just just the, the news is replete of people saying, nope, not my, not my responsibility. I was in Seattle recently visiting my granddaughters, my three granddaughters there, my son's children. Zoe's the oldest, Char's the next, Mabel is the youngest. So they, during the course of our time, we were sitting, sitting in their house, and, and uh, Allie, my, my son's wife, called down to the basement, and she said, Char, the basement's a mess, clean up that mess. All right, just a typical parent to child char shouts back it's not my mess zoe was the last one playing here it's her mess right nobody wants responsibility adam and eve satan comes satan comes to eve and says has god really did god really say you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to live if you ate from this? Did he really say that? And you know what he does? He compromises and it puts a, a seed of doubt. In is, God, is God really truthful in what he's saying? And he said, hey, you, you won't die. You won't die. Promise. And then they finesse it. They're pretty obedient people. They just took the one apple, right, or whatever fruit it was on that tree. But God comes to Adam, and he says, where are you? And and uh, basically, it's really, what have you done? And Adam, the first words out of Adam's mouth, the woman you gave me, the woman. And Eve, the serpent, did this. Who created the serpent? You created the serpent. No one wants responsibility. Harry Truman, president in the 40s and 50s, of the last century, he, he had this little sign on his desk the buck stops here and i'm always interested in how these phrases come about the buck actually was a a, a reminder of a a knife that had a a buckhorn handle to it and in poker games they would take a knife they they put in the middle of the table and they would turn that knife and the handle would point the buck would point at the next person whose deal it was and if you didn't want to deal the next hand, you would pass the buck. You would turn that knife to the next person. Aren't you glad you came, right? And, And Harry Truman, on his desk, had the buck stops here. In other words, I'm the one who's responsible. I don't know where that sign's gone. Today, it's the buck stops nowhere. So I look at that Apostles' Creed and I look at this text and I I come to this conclusion. Pilate was not innocent. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And then I reflect on this. You and I, and I'll focus on myself, I am not innocent of Jesus' blood. Hebrews 6, 6. The writer says, To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace. Believers who have lost their way, who have turned their back. The writer says, You're, You are responsible for this. I love the music at Summit. I love worshiping here. And there's a song that I have my favorite songs. One of my favorite songs is, is a hymn we sing How Deep the Father's love for us. And I I thought it was an older hymn when I first heard it, but it was written by Stuart Townsend in the early 2000s. So it's a relatively recent uh, writing of the hymn. It's beautifully done. The second verse, though, uh, sort of reflects uh, the the antidote to this whole idea that you cannot wash your hands of of Jesus. Townsend writes, Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. (laughs) It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Jim Keller. And you can insert your name. You can't wash your hands of Jesus. So what do we do with this? Well, going to make some suggestions. First of all, stop debating God. Move to truth and embrace it. You know, it's really not all that complicated being a Christian. It really isn't. There are some really... Basic truths that if we would just follow them and adhere to them, it's not that complicated. Yes, it's a confusing and, 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 and a struggling life sometimes, but it's not that complicated. Stop debating. Second, quit finessing your decisions. Choose the narrow path and walk it. And third, don't wash your hands of Jesus. Don't wash your hands of Jesus. Take responsibility for your sin. Repent and walk in his forgiveness. I was thinking of my conversations, and I was thinking, well, what's the most important conversation I've had? The most important. All of my life. And it, 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 I forgot about a conversation. It sort of surprised me when I thought of this conversation. It was a conversation I had with my wife before we were married. It was in, in March of 1976. We were we were scheduled to be married in May of that year. We were two months out from our wedding day. And I, for the last four to six weeks, had been in and out of the hospital twice. I had weird symptoms. Uh, I had vision problems. I had some numbness in my body. Uh, I uh, went into a very deep depression. I had to cease all my functioning in terms of my job. And uh, I was one mess of a person. And I remember calling my wife as an evening... Uh, in March, and, and uh, I knew I had to have this conversation with her. And I said, Renee, uh, here's the deal. I don't know. And and the fear was that I had multiple sclerosis. And, and my, my big fear was that I would lose the ability to function as, as a whole human being in terms of my physical being, and uh, I would be a burden to her. So I said, look, I said, I don't know what this is going to be like if you want, and if it's your desire, and uh, I... I want to tell you that I'm not going to, to, to like hold you to your commitment that you made to marry me. If you want to break the engagement, we can do that. She paused a little bit, and then she said, nope, we're not doing that. She said, I believe God's called us together, and uh, no, we're, we're, we're going to move ahead. Conversation, I don't think even took five minutes. And I stopped it then because I didn't want her to change her mind. So I said goodbye right away. <laughs> you know why that was the most important conversation in my life? Outside of the fact, I've been married 41 years and I'm crazy about her to this day. And you know, we have kids and grandkids, which I can't tell you just the joy of that. But she said that she wanted to still get married in spite of me potentially being a broken person. How do you you not love someone who's committed to you like that? Four years earlier, I had a conversation with Jesus. And if that sounds weird to any of you here, we Christians sometimes have conversations with Jesus, and I did. And this conversation was the one that changed my spiritual life forever. I was one broken person. I was a mess. And I remember praying and talking to him, and I remember Jesus saying back to me, as if he were speaking to me out loud, that he still wanted a relationship with me in spite of my brokenness. Stop debating God. Don't finesse. Don't wash your hands. Let's follow him the way he's called us, and let's rejoice and what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the life of your son. I thank you for the words that he spoke to those with whom he interacted. I thank you for even this conversation with a man who was afraid and confused and conflicted And who ended up not doing the right thing god i pray for myself i pray for each man and woman here i pray that you would allow us to hear your voice i pray that you would allow us to hear truth respond to it and not neglect it any longer lord thank you most of all for the forgiveness of your son for what he has done for us and we give you praise For that sacrifice. It's in his glorious name that we pray. Amen.